Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 63. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. Fuleman, how have you been doing recently? I have been doing well, enjoying the summer sunshine such as it is, which has really actually just been today. Yeah, it's uh, like the it's first, like a crap first, first good day of uh, nice weather in Toronto. Toronto has like literally the worst weather in the world. I was saying this the other day, Toronto is remarkable in that it is uncomfortable in so many different ways at different times. Like, it can be really excruciating, like, soul-sucking hot, and then a mere few months later, it can be like, it's cold enough that the wind off the lake is actually ripping the, the skin off my skull. You know, I don't think you get that too many places in the world where it's that unpleasant that many ways. Yeah. Anyway, Kawhi Leonard is leaving. So. <laughs> Sorry, that was a cruel transition. But yeah. I mean, pending the it's... result of today's basketball game. Um, we're recording this on, yeah. on Sunday. So, mm. yeah, anyways, let's not discuss that because I don't want to break my computer. <laughs> um, That's fair. Today we're going to discuss, actually, I guess somewhat topically, you know, relating to what we were just saying. We're going to discuss things for the Leafs to be optimistic about because... We need some optimism in our lives right now. Uh, the road is on fire. Everything around us is going to shit. And most importantly, the Boston Bruins are in the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, which is, if anything else, I think that's a sign of the apocalypse. I think there's a sign of the Book of Revelations being fulfilled. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, on one hand, you have global warming and, you know, mass migration <laughs> and the death of all human civilization. And on the other hand, you have Boston being happy. And I think it is no exaggeration to say that the second is far worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, you know, in the end, if there's a mass extinction event, we're all dead. Whereas when Boston wins a championship, the Barstool sports guy is going to be happy and we're all going to have to go on living with that. I think that's far more painful. Yes. So, so we are going to talk about, I guess, things to get you excited as Leaf fans. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not a Leaf fan, you make some weird choices um, <laughs> and we are not catering to you at all. No, we're not, but we admire your diversity of uh, emotional palate, you know, where you actually go and seek out those uh, strange and refined tastes. So good for you, but also, yeah, this isn't going to be your thing. But in the interest of getting back to Excited, we're going to roll with that. However, I did want to talk a little bit about something that is maybe not the most optimistic off the top, so just stay tuned for that sunshiny stuff. And I'm a little tentative about this because this is one of those rare topics where I'm not totally 100% on, like, the woke position on, like, modern hockey. Um, and that is playing through injuries. So this is coming up a lot uh, now in the playoffs. I think we're all familiar with this at this point, which is at the end of a playoff series, when a team is eliminated, suddenly you get the injury reports, you know. They didn't want to reveal too many details of the injury while players were playing because, you know, there's always some risk that the opposing team is going to target them or whatever. But once they're eliminated, there's a bit of a sense of, okay, we're not really hiding this for any reason anymore. And also, it sometimes gives you some explanation as to why certain guys were struggling. And so the Leafs were eliminated, and in the subsequent weeks, uh, different guys were slated for surgery. It was revealed that different guys had been playing through things. Zach Hyman, in particular, was playing through a particular injury. And so whenever this is disclosed, there's often a reaction on Twitter that is akin to uh, raw horror, I guess is the way to describe it. Like, it's just a feeling of, like, pure revulsion that a guy was allowed to play with an injury. And I think that this is a bit of a more complicated topic than maybe is generally acknowledged. There are injuries where 
playing with them is dangerous, is putting your future health and life at risk. Uh, you see this a lot with guys who are not fully recovered from concussions. And, you know, there's some concern there, although we don't still have the best understanding of the science there, but it is concerning. But with a lot of these injuries, I think maybe we need to be a little bit more honest about what's going on in hockey, which is that it's a physical sport and there is a certain risk of injury. These are professional athletes who are, who are devoting their lives uh, to achieving the pinnacle of their sport, uh, to being really high achieving. And I think if we're being honest, we're saying in that circumstance, one, it's understandable that they want to play through that injury, but two, I think you're justified in leaving some room for that personal choice. Like, I think that there's a point where it's like, okay, there's too much risk here. It's too clear that this is going to be debilitating, but there are injuries you can play through with limited long-term impact or with no long-term impact. Like, there are certain injuries where um, they just don't get any worse if you just keep playing through them. And... I can't help but think that, you know, when an injury or something like this comes out, I understand in a lot of cases why someone like Zach Hyman, who's, you know, a pure warrior, would want to keep showing up to play the most important games of his career, would want to be entitled to play through that. And I can't say that I'm convinced that that's wrong, or if you do think that that's wrong, I can't help but think hockey as a whole is kind of problematic. You know, I just feel like that there's a certain amount of injury risk that everybody's taking on just by playing the game. And I guess just seeing that discussion there, I couldn't help but think we're not really reckoning with that in a serious way when we're talking about guys playing through injury. But the truth is, is to some extent, that is the prerogative of the player. So that's my caveman rant to start this one off. Well, I have some follow-ups questions and I guess yeah. comments on that actually, mm -hmm. because so the, in the case of the Leafs, this was, I guess, most notable with Zach Hyman, who was playing through a torn ACL or something. And Yeah, he had a, it was a leg injury. Yes, yeah. and a friend of mine uh, actually tore their ACL recently, like maybe six months ago. And mm -hmm. like three or four weeks ago, they were at the point where they could walk normally. Mm. Right? Like Now, granted, my friend is not a professional athlete and is not retrieving anywhere not receiving anywhere near the, the level of care that Hyman is. I think what a lot of people's concern was with Hyman in particular was, is Hyman on a torn ACL better than the next guy up? And the thing is, I don't know the answer to that, right? And this mm -hmm. is what gets into your point. Um, as you said, there are, there are injuries where playing on them doesn't make it worse. Or, you know, you're going to need to get a surgery to correct, to correct it, but... In the meantime, it's literally just soldiering through the pain. And then once you get the surgery, it's X weeks from the, from the surgery date and all the rehab and that sort of thing. And, you know, you're not putting yourself at any harm. And most of us in, the, in commenting on this are not doctors. I think even people who are doctors would need to actually, like, see Zach Hyman and, like, mm -hmm. conduct an analysis of his knee or whatever, whatever ligament he messed up, to determine is he... At a, at risk of re-injuring, B, at what percentage of his full health is he, you know, um, how limited will he be? We don't know the answers to that. And right. in some cases, I think we can be pretty 
we can be kind of sure even from afar that, oh, this is not a good idea. And concussions are the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's like, okay, yeah, like just you, you don't mess with the brain at all. With the other stuff, to some degree, I... Maybe, and this this is actually definitely misplaced, but to some degree, I think you have to leave it up to the coaching staff and the medical staffs of the teams and the players themselves, as you said. Um, th- from everything we've heard, and this is getting back to the Leafs, from everything we've heard, the Leafs medical staff operates independently of the coaching staff. Right? And, and yeah, there have been some comments. Uh, Mike Babcock has said things like, you know, I wait to hear the word from them. Yeah, and he, he uh, Babcock said, like, he leans on them, but, like... At the end of the day, if the medical staff says they're good to go, they're good to go. They say they're not, they're not. Now, we can debate about whether the Leafs coaching staff in a playoff situation would put more pressure on the medical staff and, Mm -hmm. you know, lean on them more and maybe make the medical staff make a call they're not comfortable with. That's all, you know, speculation that I really don't see any informed basis for besides assuming the worst of pro sports, which is not a bad rule in general. It, it's certainly possible. It'll be borne out uh, at least a fair percentage of the time. Right. But, but I'm not willing yeah. to kill the Leafs over this without getting more information. Now, the the most, I guess, famous kind of gruesome injury that I remember from a player in the postseason was Patrice Bergeron playing through like a punctured lung or something. Yes. And, and to this day, I have to say, I, you know, obviously I have no expert understanding whatsoever of medicine. Um I have, like, barely a grade school understanding of medicine. Like, it's really bad. But um, I am a little surprised that that was even possible. Yeah. like I, I don't know a lot about lungs, but they, seem, they do seem very important. Yeah. I'm no expert, but, you know, air hmm, seems fundamental. Yeah. But, uh, but, again, it's like, we don't have the medical diagnosis. I don't... It seems weird, but, like, I, I, you, you have to trust that the medical staff is doing a decent job. And without... Mm-hmm further information in uh, in most cases in most cases that are not like stupidly obvious it's hard for me to really criticize the player or the medical staff for mm-hmm. you know allowing them to continue playing because we don't have the information right yeah in, in, in i guess cases. sort of what i'm trying to say is something like one it's not on the face of it crazy for a guy to want to play through an injury, for a guy to be allowed to play through an injury, depending on what it is, and recognizing my own limitations, I'm deferential up to a point in terms of the decision being made. Now, that said, there is an issue there in terms of pressures on the medical staff to tell players what they want to hear, to tell teams what they want to hear. But I just don't consider it like the fact that X guy had an injury and he was playing on it. That's not like authoritative proof in my eyes that this was a mistake or that this was something that's immoral. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think, don't think it turns us into fans of a gladiator. I think that's contest. fair. Um, the, oh, the, the other bad, Sean Couturier, last playoffs, he had a broken leg or something like I, that. He, yeah, he scored a, oh. a hat trick in like game five or game six on a broken leg. That was pretty badass. Um, yeah, I, I mean, respect. But, but, but also but, at the again, same time, actually, that's kind of baffling. Yeah, but again, a broken leg is something. And I'm guessing it was not like his you know, his uh, femur was fractured. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Yeah, it was like, well, I mean, uh, yeah, it has to be something that you can support, right? Yes. Like that you can kind of, yeah, uh, injure um, it. But, but, um, but a bone break is one of those things that, and someone please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a doctor, but it seems like one of those things where it's like, you're probably not going to make it much worse by playing a game or so on it. 
mm-hmm. and the healing time is going to be more or less the same afterwards. So I can see why they allowed him to play. And then in that case, I guess it, it became pretty clear. Hey, Sean Couturier on a broken leg is still pretty good. He scored a hat trick. Yeah. Um. So, um, like in that, in that yeah. case, the concern of is he better than the next person up was a resounding yes. Um. So yeah, it's the other thing is hockey because you are. It's a very brutal sport, don't get me wrong, but because you're so protected and because you're skating, there's less friction, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of lug yourself around when part of your legs are compromised. Yeah, I saw a tweet once that was, um, this was incendiary, I want to say, and I'm not saying that it's um, necessarily valid, but someone was pointing out, it's like, gee, does the fact that there are so many hockey players playing through injuries all the time not suggest something about how possible it is to keep playing hockey when you're injured. But um, I don't know how far I want to take that. But, you know, certainly we've seen guys who are not 100% who have continued to be effective. And, you know, that debate is actually playing out right now um, about Eric Carlson, who's, as we speak, actually playing for the San Jose Sharks. Mm-hmm. And he... Uh, had a bit of a rough moment on the first goal right before we started recording, apparently. I'm just being told by Twitter. I haven't had the game on, obviously. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's a live debate in terms of when it's appropriate. Right. And Carlson has admitted he's injured. Or at least his agent has said, yeah. like, yeah, he's injured. Like, everyone, and, you know, everyone knows. Everyone can kind of tell it's been reported on. And, you know, I think that that's a live issue. I guess just what I'm saying is it's not automatic. It's not always clear to me that... It's wrong for a guy to be allowed to play through an injury. It's Sometimes it is. Yes. But um, I just think that that's maybe less conclusive than hockey Twitter sometimes likes to make it out to be. And also, I mean, the whole time, and this isn't totally fair, but the whole time I find myself thinking, but no one here is a doctor. You know, there are a few people who are, obviously, and they have legitimate medical opinions. But you'll get a lot of people who tend to whistle Dixie on that topic and speak with maybe more expertise than they actually have. So, yeah. Anyway, that was just my my little opening thing. And now we're going to try to be sunny. We're going to live up to our name and be back to excited and uh, to earn that for once. Okay. Yeah. So things to be optimistic about the Leafs. Do you want to start or should I? Um, You know what? I'll defer to you. You go ahead. Okay. So my first thing to be optimistic about for the Leafs, I trust Kyle Dubas. Mm. So I think, and you actually had a very nice article about this few might have been a month ago at this point or a few weeks ago where you went to kind of in detail on literally every transaction that Kyle Dubas has made mm-hmm. and I think the conclusion you came to and it's one I generally agree with and what will surely surprise our fans <laughs> um, is that he's done a pretty good job and yeah. I, I'd actually go maybe a bit stronger I think yeah he's done a, he's done a very good job in my opinion um, there there are two potential missteps, and both are can be seen as large depending on your perspective. It is reasonable to see the Austin Matthews contract as an overpay, right? We, we paid um, five years, $11.6 million, so a, a lot of AAV for not that much term relative to what, what we had seen in prior years with star guys like McDavid and Eichel, right? It was kind of a return to the late 2000s era where these high, highly drafted star players would sign five, six-year deals off their ELCs. 
and go from there. Except the cap hit for Matthews like didn't seem to suggest any term discount at all. And you have argued, and it's again an argument I agree with that. I feel like that Dubas might have been able to get some savings if he had waited. We don't know that for sure, but I don't love the the deal for Matthews because it pays him like he is basically the second best player in the world, and he isn't that yet, and he very well could be, but he isn't that yet, and it's not my favorite deal. So there's a reasonable argument for that being a misstep by Dubas. Um, there is a, in my opinion, far less reasonable argument for the William Nylander contract being a misstep, but people have argued it nonetheless. Um, with Nylander, I, I really failed to see what more he could have done in that situation, but at the end of the day, he got a player who, you know, we're not going to relitigate all the reasons why we think Nylander is still a good player, but we got someone who we think is a good player for a fair deal. It's not a good deal for the Leafs. It, it maybe tilts slightly towards Nylander, not by a huge amount. I think the worst thing you can say about it, if you're being intellectually honest, is that it's a 200k overpay. Yeah, I, I mean, there are people who think that he should have been able to get Nylander for, you know, five and a half million on this term. I don't think that that was ever going to happen. I don't see why you can argue that that, that was ever going to happen. And I remember in the summer, and by the way, this is not me crowing too much because I'm totally conscious I've been wrong about a ton of stuff, including, like, I don't know, all of my playoff picks this year. But I figured Nylander was going to come in about $6.9 million. And that's about where he came in. And I can't help thinking that for all the storm and the stress and the upset, Dubas handled that about the way that I wanted to. He didn't slag the player publicly. He reassured the player. I mean, we remember that famous flight to Europe where he said, I want you to be part of this team. You are a core player, in my opinion. We value you. We want you on this franchise. He held out to the extent of his leverage, but he didn't cut off his nose despite his face by saying, you know what? Go screw you. Uh, sit out the season. We don't need you anymore. Um, or basically daring him to, you know, kind of piss off. I think Dubas did what I would want him to do on the Nylander contract. And I want to emphasize the right answer for that was not to lose a really good young player, no matter how mad his shooting percentage has made you this year. Right. He had a down year productivity wise, but by and large, I will defend that deal. The other thing, so. I mean, Dubas himself has criticized his the way he went about that deal, how much of that is honest versus optics is mm-hmm. kind of a quite an open question, but taking him at face value, I can understand his, if you, maybe you can criticize him for, for letting it get to that point. He should have started dialogue earlier. We're not privy to those discussions. Dubas has said that he should have done that and he's going to do that with Marner and he evidently did do that with Matthews, which, you know, that deal was signed very early. So those are the, the two. So let, let's accept Dubas at his word and say, Maybe he could have done more to prevent it from getting to that point. Once it got to that point, I think he did everything he could. But let's be uncharitable to him. Let's say Dubas has made those two mistakes. I struggle to find anything else that he has really whiffed on, right? Uh, the Jake Muzzin trade, I don't think he gets enough credit for. The Jake Muzzin trade was really, really good. And frankly, there is a contingent of the Leafs fan base that is obsessed with we needed to bring in big physical defensemen. And I'm like... He's there. He's the guy. (laughs) And, you know, he wasn't just a big physical defenseman. He's also a good defenseman. I think Jake Muzzin was a rare guy who was good in a lot of dimensions and who worked on a lot of levels. And I think that, you know, people have a tendency to sort of throw everything out and say, well, they lost to Boston in seven games. So who cares? It doesn't really matter. Uh, The Jake Muzzin trade 
was a great move, especially given Jake Gardner was a long way short of 100%, speaking of guys playing through injuries. Um, Jake Muzzin stepped up in a big way. He was arguably our best defenseman against Boston. He, he was, he was, was a, a big reason move. it went to seven games. He was a big reason we were in with a shot. Big reason we had a 3-2 lead, yeah. right? It, it, yeah, if, he and Nikita Zaitsev formed a really respectable pair. Yes, which not a lot of pairings with Nikita Zaitsev have been, right? Yeah. Well, certainly against tough competition as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's Muzzin was excellent, and he got him with another year of term on his deal in a way to essentially, you know, in all likelihood, replace Jake Gardner, who, mm-hmm. you know, without whom we would be lost. Imagine if we didn't have Gardner signed into next year, which we, we're not going to have anyways, and we didn't have Jake Muzzin, our defense core would be even worse. It was a very good deal. He gave up a late first, whatever, cost of doing business. You got an additional year of term. Carl Grundstrom and Sean Dursey. I'm not going to say that either of those players are going are like bad players or bad prospects. They certainly seem like they're fine prospects, but there's nothing there that I dislike. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that that's a good trade. I don't see how you anyone can honestly argue that it was not a good trade. And I think if that trade happens at the trade deadline instead of a month before the trade deadline, it, it gets remembered better because it gets remembered. People like almost yeah. forgot about it. It, it <laughs> it's weird. It was that was an excellent, excellent trade. Really, really good trade. Yeah. One of, you know, one of the reasons we still have optimism about our defense core next year because before it was like, okay, well, we had, you know, Gardner, Riley, Dermott. We have three guys who we can be confident are uh, good for their roles, right? Now we mm-hmm. still have those three guys. And, it, you know, for the first four months of the year, it looked like, we, it looked like in 2019, 2020, we would have at most two of them. Yeah. Right? So it was going to be pretty dubious. And especially given that Travis Dermott is now undergoing surgery. Yes. Like, that would just exacerbate the thing to an even greater degree. Yes. So, so that, that was an excellent deal. The other moves he's made, um, kind of a... I mean, he, he, he got rid of Parland home and got someone who can handle a puck in Nick Patan. Patan didn't really <laughs> do much in Toronto, didn't have a chance really to do much. Um, will potentially be a, a part of the team, you know, in a more meaningful way going forward. That's kind of... You know, it's, it's shuffling deck chairs to some degree, but that's not a bad move. Um, the Levo for Carconi trade is maybe the other direction. We gave up value, but we were never going to use Levo in general. Um, or, in, yeah, like Babcock was not going to use Levo, for, for better or for worse, right? You, you have to play with the, the cards you're, you're given. Yeah. So, you, know, you just look at that body of work, and Dubas has, by and large, done a good job. And he's not sat on his hands either. Like, the the Muzzin trade is a significant addition. Yeah, that's not nothing. And it's worth, you know, we've worked through all the stuff that he did in the season. I think the honest truth is, is that if he had sat on his hands and done virtually nothing except sign John Tavares, he would still be probably, in my opinion, one of the best GMs in the the, league. I actually completely forgot about that. He signed John Tavares. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, because it was so early in his tenure and, you know, people just take it as a given or they assume that he was just wanted to come home. By all accounts, John Tavares was very undecided until very late in the process until Kyle Dubas went in and hit it out of the park with a presentation. You know, say what you will about him. He nailed the most important free agent negotiation this team has arguably ever had. You know, like that's got to count for something. Y- you know, so as much as, you know, Kyle Dubas is not perfect. Um, again, I think it's fair to say he has not captured 
the kind of additional value on his RFA contracts that we might hope for in the best yes. scenario, the way that, and, and, say, Tampa and does. That is, that is a legit criticism, right? Like, I, I mean, I said before that the Nina Energy was a fair deal, and it can it's a fair criticism to say, you know, other teams aren't getting fair deals. They are, you know, robbing their RFAs. Mm-hmm. And whether it's, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this. I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to get a discount on Toronto players because there are so much media and it's hard for anyone to, like, there's no underappreciation of any player here. No. <laughs> like, you, you know, the truth is, is that um, in Toronto, if you are a pretty successful AHL player at some point, like, The Athletic will do a profile on you, and TSM will say, can, you know, Jimmy McFuckface be a part of the team next year or something like that. You know, like, you will get drummed up in a way that just does not happen to the same extent in other markets. And when you are a star, when you are one of a, a team of stars in a way that uh, the Leafs have not really had in this kind of quality and quantity, um, that's really going to be exacerbated. You know, so so I do kind of respect that he was probably up against it in that way. Yeah, but it, it, it is a criticism. The other thing that, yeah. that makes it, I guess, potentially tougher on him is that the Leafs' young stars have been part of consistent playoff teams, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes it easier for them to say, hey, look, we're a good team. I'm clearly doing something to drive us to success. Pay me, right? And like, yeah, and like and- you need me to be on the team right now because you are a contender. So pay me, right? Whereas for like when Mark Shifley signed his deal, you couldn't really say that about him in Winnipeg, right? When Nathan McKinnon signed his deal, you couldn't say that about him in Colorado. Uh, Jack Eichel. Yeah. And, and, uh, and You've never been able to say it at any point and before. Honestly, same with, same, same <laughs> with McDavid. McDavid signed his deal after yeah. one playoff run, right? Which, I, actually, you know what? That's a bad example. McDavid just got underpaid because he's, you know, a boring Canadian guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was going to say, he did get the highest cap at the NHL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, McDavid's um, not relevant to this. I shouldn't have brought that up. Um, yeah. Not really comparable, but, but yeah. But, you know, uh, the issue here is, like, I think if you compare what Kyle Dubas has done to what he should have done, I, I think it's very hard, in most cases, to posit some sort of, inter- like, alternative course of action that would have been way better, that's not, like really obvious hindsight. I mean, you get some people saying, uh, oh, we should have traded Nylander. Well, I think that that's dumb. How's that? You know, I think that uh, trading a 22-year-old player who is a 60-point player who has been really successful in driving play, who, you know, we've talked about his limitations before, but I think that that would have been setting himself up to make a Chiarelli move. You know, we were talking about this before, actually. You know, there's... There's a team that made a habit of trading successful young players in their 20s uh, for various reasons. And, you know, I think I would say maybe the most heartening thing that I've seen about Cal Dubas is that I've never seen him act emotionally in a way that would worry me. You know, he kept his eyes on the prize all through the Nylander negotiation. Uh, I think he's conducting the Martin negotiation fine. His comments to the media have always been pretty measured at, you know, the, the thing that stood out for me is that he was really apologetic when he really did not have that much to apologize for. But I just think that it's a real relief having someone with a brain run this team. And there was a long period where we were so mismanaged that I'm a little surprised that Lee fans have forgotten what that was like, frankly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah. 
we, we, we've seen real mismanagement. Um, on the trade Nylander point, this is one of those things where it's like other teams were not lining up to give us P.K. Subban and, you know, Dougie Hamilton for what you need. They're giving us Brett Pesci. Yeah. Like, you know. If, if you want to trade, if you <laughs> honestly, if you still want to trade Nylander for Brett Pesci, you're not listening to this podcast, really. But, like, like, if there's one person in the world who's listening to this podcast who wants to make that trade, you're making the wrong choice, man. And if I can convince that one person, then, you know, I've done some good in the world. But <laughs> That's the missionary role of this podcast, yeah, the, is convince that the, the one person. The thing is, like, at that point, you're trading from a position of weakness. Other GMs are not handing you a lifeline. They're, hang, they're handing, eh, handing you an anchor, mm-hmm. right? They're not, you're, they're not giving you a fair value deal at that point because you have what in financial terms is a distressed asset. So mm-hmm. anyways, this has kind of gotten far afield, but the point is, I think in any honest evaluation of Dubis's performance, there's really, there's only a few points you could possibly criticize. The, the uh, Nylander and Matthews contracts, and I guess the fact that he let Nylanders go so long, the fact that he potentially overpaid for Matthews, and that he hasn't acquired Sparky, the unicorn right-hand defenseman who will solve all our problems. And yeah. that is a... F- that's not a realistic thing to, you know, that's not a realistic expectation to, to set for, for Dubas. He, I think he did, he went a long way to addressing the Leafs' defensive issues by getting the best defenseman on the market in Jake Musson. Mm-hmm. The fit was... And not paying through the nose. Agreed. Like, I think that's worth noting, is that the Leafs at this point have a relatively thin-ish prospect I think pool, we can remove which the is mostly... it's, it's, it. I think it's just thin at this point. It's Yeah, it's thin because... Uh, most of the best players have graduated and they're not prospects anymore. And so, you know, that's fine. That's sort of a cost of doing business. But it also means that you don't have the same level of capital and it can be tempting to deal from the top of that group. Actually, while we're on the topic, I think it's pretty much unanimous at this point that the best player in the Leafs prospect pool on the way up is Rasmus Sandin. Like, maybe Timothy Liljegren, who we also didn't trade, but... Sandine is, I think, clearly the jewel of it. And I was actually convinced that Dubas made a mistake there. Like, I was having a bit of a feeling like I did when we picked Korshkov over to Brincat under the previous regime in 2016. Um, because I thought, oh, we're passing on Joe Valeno. Uh, Dubas is picking the guy he knows from the Sioux. I'm not sure this is a good idea. And I was actually skeptical of that. I gotta tell you, I'm not so mad anymore <laughs> about taking Rasmus Sandine. So... As much as I, you know, I'm predisposed to, to think highly of Caldubas because, you know, he is a sort of a nerdy guy and he's well thought of. Um, I really think that he has legitimately impressed. I think he's done a good job. Um, I'm surprised that people are coming to alternative conclusions, but there are some people who are mad about the Leafs losing in seven games, which I get. It's frustrating. And there are some people who don't like his demeanor. They don't like his age. Um they don't like whatever things about him. Maybe they don't like his fans who are a bunch of, you know, Twitter nerds, among other things. But by and large, I think you have to say we're in pretty good hands right now. Agree. Okay, so we spent like 15 minutes on our on our on on my first <laughs> thing to be optimistic about. Uh, what is your first thing to be optimistic about? Okay, this one is uh, starting on the simplest thing, but we have a lot of good players and they're still really young. And I think that a combination of aging curves and just sort of growing received nerd wisdom is almost like if you don't win while your guys are on ELCs, you're doomed forever. And that's not true. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, Austin Matthews is 21. 
Nylander is 23. Mitch Marner is 22. Uh, even, you know, John Tavares is 28. These are guys who are going to be good for quite a while, who in some cases we can expect will get better. Um, we're going to have some kicks at the can here. And as much as, you know, there's a sense of like, oh, the window could close any time. Now we're going to have to pay all these players. I, you know, I've been thinking of something that uh, Clark Aitken, who used to write for us and who sometimes still comments on our site, uh, has been saying, he says, the window only really closes when your team gets stupid. He's, you know, his point is, the window isn't foreordained to close um, just when, you know, your players turn 23 and then they have to get paid on their second contracts. This ties into the point about Kyle Dubas not being stupid, for one thing, but we still have a core of good players that I think is really enviable, that I would have loved to have had at a lot of points throughout the history. And, you know, the Washington Capitals are a great example, who didn't win until a lot of their core was in their 30s. But I think that we're going to get more shots at this. I'm not saying that anything is guaranteed. I'm not saying that there isn't more frustration in store in the future, but I'm thinking... If you had to pick a group to build around here, expensive as they are, you could do a lot worse than the group of players that we have coming up. I think you could do a hell of a lot worse. Um, so, so I'm, you know, big picture, still pretty happy. And you say, well, you know, there are going to be some some bumps. And I think maybe what this season has done is uh, dealt a blow to the idea of perfect linear progression. Like the Leafs are going to just keep automatically getting better every year. And by year four, you're an automatic cup winner. Well, it's clear that's not going to happen. You know, the, the Leafs have been close to the same level as last year. Although I think I would argue they were actually a bit better in a lot of ways. <laughs> but the Leafs have reached a level that I think that they can sustain at. And with a little bit of improvement, with a little bit of luck, they're still capable of taking that next step at some point. I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but like, it's not like because we didn't win the cup this year that suddenly it's like snakes and ladders and we fall back all the way down to square one. We're in a good place moving forward. And as pissed off as I get, I think that that's worth keeping in perspective sometimes. Um, you know, going into next season, I think we'll still be one of the better teams in the NHL. So, yeah, I, I don't know how often I could have said that in the past. And if it's any consolation to, uh, to people, um, you know, mm -hmm. Boston's kind of run train through the rest of the Eastern playoffs. Yeah, like, and, and you know, I kind of figured they were going to beat Carolina. Yeah. I didn't think they, they would sweep. Yeah, and e even against Columbus, <laughs> like, they were decidedly getting the better of the, the, the play at even strength. And against the Leafs, it was as close as possible. It, it, it really was. Yeah. That was a series that could have gone either way. And it's very hard to be zen about it because we are so emotionally attached and, like, fuck, that series sucked, right? Like, losing yeah. the way we and did. You'll get some people saying, like, Oh, also, this is a proof that this was actually our year because we lost to, you know, the best team well, remaining. There's no guarantee of that. Yeah, but, like, but there's no, yeah, you know. Um, even though yeah, I think we would have been favorites against Columbus and Carolina, Carolina especially, mm -hmm. like, mostly because of our special teams advantage. Their special teams are really, really awful. Um, yeah, it's wild because five on five, they're a fantastic team. It's weird because, like, they're, yeah. they're a team that has a reputation of being, you know, very smart and investing heavily in analytics, and it's like... Why is your power play run exclusively through slap shots from the point? Yeah, you know what? Uh, okay, so this is like, pet theories on Carolina have gotten me in trouble before because <laughs> I was convinced that they were messing with their shooting percentage. But I do think that if you were trying to build a team on a budget to do really well, one way to do that would be 
very good defensemen. Mm -hmm. And so they built a defense core that is, in my opinion, the envy of the Eastern Conference. And, like, it only gives way to really Nashville in the West. Uh, if that. Y you know, but the result is, is that when most of your best players are defensemen, um, I think there is a tendency to rely on them even in power play situations. And that's where you get into trouble. Yeah, maybe. And, so. and it also might just be one of those things where a lot of their, their forwards are really excellent, but they're excellent because they do a lot of things at five on five that, that lead to play driving and continued success in getting shots and getting chances at five on five. But five on four is a very mm -hmm. different thing. And, you know, maybe their skills just don't lend themselves to that. That said, I, I do feel like a lot of power play success is, is systemic and can mm -hmm. be coached if you have the right setup. Um, and the right skills on your team. Anyways, this is getting mm -hmm. far afield. But, yeah, the, Le the Leafs were a good team. And I see criticism of Babcock a lot, uh, you know, with the argument that, like, oh, the Leafs, you know, shot metrics over the past two years have been pretty meh. It it's it's not been... They haven't been amazing. They're, it seems like they're stagnating to some degree. And I think there are reasonable criticisms to be made there. But... There's a couple things with that argument that kind of annoy me. The first is, and this is something that people do commonly, and it's very misleading, although a lot of people don't realize why, is that they'll use ranks to say, oh, the Leafs were 14th, let's say, in the, over the last two years in Corsi percentage, right? That is true. That is a fact. But 14th in Corsi percentage is maybe a percentage point or two away from, like, 8th. It's yeah. a very, very small difference, right? And that doesn't mean that statement is a lie or anything, but it means that, essentially... All that tells me is that the Leafs are in that big glob of teams that are not elite at driving play at 5-on-5 five five and are still above average. That's mm -hmm. all that tells me, right? There's also a lot kind of missing there. The Leafs are a team that has considerable shooting talent. They have two of the best high-volume shooters in the league in, someone, in Tavares and in Matthews. They have a lot of other good finishers historically. Kadri is historically a good finisher. Marner, for all kind of the crap he gets for a shot, is historically a good finisher, even accounting for his shot location. So, you know, I'm not on board with this idea of the coach is responsible for the team's coursey, and, mm -hmm. you know, the players are responsible for the team's shooting percentage or anything like that. Like, you know, it, it all gets kind of commingled together. That's the part of being a team. Yeah, so I do think that there is, um, well, frankly, you know, we talked about this earlier in the season, but there was this idea that uh, when things were bad, it's Mike Babcock's coaching, and then the players would go rogue and then randomly decide to be successful just some of the time. That's pretty simplistic to me. Like, you know, I think you have to, to wrap all of that together in evaluating the quality of the team. But there's a lot to like there in terms of how the team did. As frustrating as it was at times. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's just like when you step back a bit, when you step back from the perspective of we were supposed to win the cup this year, which I get the feeling, you know, you want to contend, you want to move forward, you want to win a fucking playoff round. But still, the team has a lot to recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, big picture. And also this year, it's worth noting, if you do care about those, you know, shot metrics, um, the Leafs were pretty decent at them when we had our full lineup. When we had our full lineup... Mm -hmm. Uh, they were, I think, a, around a 52% shots team, which is good. Like that, that, that's, You're at the point where like, you can play with anyone at that point, in my opinion. The, the, yeah. That's no longer... There's, there's room for improvement, of course, but 
you know, you can be kind of satisfied with, okay, we're at that level, especially because there's so much that shots and even expected goals don't really, don't fully account for, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's just, the other thing is, it, it, one thing that gets unsaid, now this is, this is turning just into me ranting about people, but it's no longer me being optimistic about anything, but it's, this is somewhat related, <laughs> so I'm going to say it. Um, people talk about the Leafs, like, their lineup is so good that they should be top five in everything. Yeah. And at the same time, they're like, man, our defense sucks. And they're like, these are incompatible thoughts. <laughs> the Leafs, ha yeah. Leafs have a lot of talent. <laughs> they, they do. But, you know, it, similar to what we were just theorizing about Carolina, maybe their talent isn't structured in a way that allows them to easily have good special teams. The Leafs' talent, a lot of it, is that they have really really good offensive players and those offensive players are not great defensively like like austin matthews is the leafs in many ways right he mm -hmm. is incredible offensively he might be you know the, the second best offensive player in the world he is that good offensively he is not he's not good defensively he's not the leafs are not good defensively why are we convinced that that's a mike babcock problem not hey our roster has flaws just like every roster in the league yeah, uh, I mean, it's very hard for me to look at this roster and not think like, hey, there are some reasons for the imperfections here. Yes, we, and, we don't we don't have you know, good defensive forwards. We don't have good defensive defensemen except for Jake Muzzin at this point. Right? Uh, <laughs> again, Morgan Riley, great player. Love the guy. Want him to be captain. Really bad at defense. Yeah, just, you know, probably not on the table there. And so, you know, I just find myself thinking, I, I talked about this a long a long, long time ago, and I actually wrote an article called Am I Smarter Than Mike Babcock? And of course, the first one is obviously not. But the idea is when you're trying to evaluate a coach's decisions, um, and when you're not a hockey coach yourself, when you're not an NHL coach, which I sure as hell am not, there's a sphere, kind of, where you say, okay, I may not be 100% on board with this, but there's benefit of the doubt there that I give to the coach. And then you get to, there are decisions that seem so glaringly bad that even for all my limitations, I am convinced that there's nothing that I don't know that's going to justify them. Like Randy Carlyle was such a ghastly coach for this team. I was pretty sure that he was doing a bad job. I think that he definitely was doing a bad job, warts and all. A lot of the decisions that Mike Babcock makes... Even when I don't agree with them, they're kind of in the realm where I'm like, okay, I kind of get it. I get where he's coming from there. And I'm not seeing that kind of damning thing in the results a lot of the time. That's really making me think, nope, okay, case is proven against him. And, you know, people say, well, the clear result is they could get out around one. Yeah, against Boston, who are rampaging through the league at this point. You know, I guess I just find myself thinking... For all I get that you want to have doubts about him, and there are criticism with, of him that I share, and I do think that if the team doesn't have a better finish next season, he's probably going to get fired. Um, I just don't find myself thinking that it's fair to tag him with enough stuff here where I'm saying he's the clear problem with this franchise. Yes. And so so just to tie this yeah. back into our theme for the podcast, you can lump this into mm -hmm. my first point. I trust Kyle Dubas and... I think Mike Babcock is a fine coach. I, I don't think yeah. Mike Babcock is the problem with this team. I don't think it's at all obvious that replacing him with 
Sheldon Keefe or who, Ricard Gronberg or whoever is an upgrade. You can. I, I'm not saying it's unreasonable to believe that. If you have an informed opinion on that, go ahead. It's not something that mm-hmm. has been made clear to me. Um, and again, that's not to say that Babcock is perfect. One, one thing I do, I think Jeff Vayette's pointed this out. The Leafs are one of the teams that has their shot uh, ratio at home is worse than their shot ratio on the road, which mm-hmm. could be indicative of Babcock's line matching not being as successful as he would like. Um, it could be also due to other things. You know, if we had more home games uh, at the start of the year when we didn't have our full lineup, then maybe that, that's the cause of it. But as far as I know, this pattern goes fairly long back. So, yes, that is an issue. I'm not saying Babcock is perfect. I think he's just not as awful as some people kind of paint it. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to that classic way of thinking, which is that it's easier to fire the coach than anything else. You know, admitting flaws with this roster is, oh, shit, we've got a roster that needs to be fixed, and it's not going to be easy. Or at least we've got a roster where there are clear holes, and they might hold us back from where we want to be. Firing coaches is easy. You can do fire, You can fire coaches all day. You know what I mean? In terms of that's the most obvious personnel change that you can make. But ultimately, I just find myself thinking, okay, I'm not at the point where, where I'm done with him yet. Now, you know, maybe I'll get there. But at the least, I've seen really bad coaching where I was convinced that it was causing the team to really flail. And as much as, you know, people like to be critical of Babcock and all that sort of stuff. And again, he has his limitations, but like, do you remember the Carlisle years? Like, do you remember, uh, you know, do you look at what the Islanders were like last year? When you look at uh, some of the the coaches that Buffalo's had, and even then I don't think Bowsman's necessarily bad, but you look at some of the stuff that, that happens on really poorly coached teams. Um, I know you say you want to get the, the best coach available and that's fine, but I think when you know people take it as a as a granted point that like Mike Babcock is in that class of just absolutely flawed coaches who are going to hold us back, I don't know. I find that uh, too much to swallow right now. So, yeah, I, I would say that there's some reason for optimism that we're not being coached by a complete idiot at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While we're on this topic, what do you think of the idea that like Babcock was out coached by Cassidy or, or things to of that nature? Uh, he was outcoached by Cassidy insofar as he could not tell Tuka Rask to suck. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I hate to say it, but, like, you can certainly point to to things, but I think people are mostly judging the result there. They're saying, well, he lost, so, ergo, he was outcoached. Yeah, so one thing I always think of, I, I tend to look at other team sites uh, after each game, get a sense of what their fans think, and... After the Leafs went up 3-2, I went to Boston's SB Nation site, and people, they were, like, very annoyed at Cassidy. Cassidy's getting out coached. They, they've neutralized the Bergeron line with Muzzin Zaitsev. You know, they've, they've mm-hmm. uh, what's it, they're, they're taking advantage of our bad depth. Babcock is figuring out how to get his lines up. And, like, some of that may be true, some of that may be not. But I think people often discuss this with the results in mind. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's not, again, it's, it's not obvious to me that Cassidy outcoached Babcock or Babcock out, outcoached Cassidy. Certainly, I think there were issues with the Leafs coaching that we, we've mentioned, playing their power play one far less than they should have, playing mm-hmm. um, n- n- not 
being quicker to potentially, you know, start being creative with uh, the Leafs lines and playing their star players once they fell down in in Game 7. Even, you know, from the start of the series, not being willing to take a risk and say, okay, Freddie, we love you, Gauthier, that is. You're not playing in the playoffs. We're just rolling one of our other three centers there. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, things like that. But I think those probably exist for Boston too. And the reality is we're just not as familiar with them. So we don't know what their alternatives are. And we're not as familiar with the choices that Cassidy is making, the explicit choices that Cassidy is making. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you could have argued that, oh, you know, he, let's say the Leafs won game seven. Oh, he waited too long to put to spit up Bergeron or, past, uh, or to spit up Pasternak from the other line. Or he, you know, he oh, he split them up and they, they couldn't get any offense yeah. in Game 7. Like, there, there's many ways where the same decisions can go in different directions, and it's all based on probabilities, right? Like, things can happen. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And, you know, it, I, I don't get the idea that Babcock has, was totally outfoxed by, by Cassidy, who I do think is a, is a good coach. Um, it, was yeah, a, it was an I, I even series that, you know, a few decisions one way or the other could have swung it, but by and large, it's, it's an even series, and it, it's hard to read too much into, you know, the micro-events, as, as Kyle Dubas says. I think that there's a very, very common bias in hockey watching, which is uh, protagonist goggles. Right. You know, essentially, our team is essentially the protagonist of the narrative in our minds, right? Or in other words, you know, we follow them. We pay attention to them, and when they win, it's because of things they did. And when they lose, it's because of things that they did wrong or failed to do. And so there's a sense of when the Leafs go out and lose, it's because Mike Babcock did not make the best possible decisions. When the Leafs win, it's either because he did or in spite of him or whatever. And, you know, there's, you know, I think when people are saying outcoached, they're not really measuring much about Cassidy so much as they're saying Babcock didn't do what I wanted him to do, which was win. And you know, to do other things. Now, I'm not saying that every criticism of him is not, is is baseless or is not well thought out. I want to be clear about that. Like, there are better articulated criticisms there. And you can legitimately say, you know, I don't think he's getting the most out of this team that I believe to be possible. But I can't help noticing, one, the Muzzin-Zaitsev pairing, which I really did not think much of. Um let me rephrase. It's not that I didn't think much of it. It's that until I saw it working, I'd never thought of it as a possibility, really. Because <laughs> I just assumed that you can't use Zaitsev in that kind of role successfully. Uh, that really worked. And it also answered what I thought was going to be a problem, which was the overuse of Ron Hainsey. Um, the Leafs in Game 5 played as good a defensive game as I've ever seen this team produced. Which is, again, not always saying the most because they're not a great defensive team. But... I just I saw a lot of things that I liked in that series, and it's easy to forget them because we lost. But I think when you're saying he got out coached, you're saying we lost Game Seven, and you can point to flaws, but you also have to keep an eye on some things worked, some things went well. So, yeah, I don't know. I just I'm not in a position where I think I'm ready to give up on Mike Babcock. Yeah, this has just turned into like a leave Mike alone video or a <laughs> podcast. Um, so we've got very yeah. off track. I think I'm supposed to come up with something yeah. optimistic now. Yeah, we sort of segued back and forth there, but uh, you kind of doubled up on that in terms of like a related point is him not being mm-hmm. an idiot. Do you have one in the chamber? We can go. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Actually, I, I didn't have one in the chamber. I'm just trying to think of one right now. <laughs> I mean, I've got one. It's a little bit more future-oriented. Okay, well, one uh, I was going to say is that William yeah. Ender is finding his form in with the World Championships. Yeah, he's got like a billion points. Yeah, he's leading, but, he's leading the tournament in points right now. Um, and look, let's not get carried away. Four of his games have been against guys that I could probably score on. That's not true, but like, you know... <laughs> There, there have been two games where he's played against essentially NHL quality. That's one against Czech Republic, one against Switzerland. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in both those games he was playing. You know, he he plays very high up in the in the Sweden lineup. He's on, he's on the one A one B line essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And well, you know, the Swedish coach runs four lines pretty evenly, so he would be hated in Toronto. Um, Nylander has played very, very well. I mean, you look at that line, you watch those games. Beyond the points, he's creating something whenever he gets on the ice. And I think more than anything, it will be good for him to get into his, to be in a position where he's succeeding. Right? Confidence yeah. is so important. As an athlete, you need to have a lot of it. And I'm sure he does. Um, but it's easy for that to erode over the course of what I'm sure was not a very fun season for him between the stress about the contract impasse and the criticism he got and the lack of production. So I think it's a good thing for him to get into a position where he's succeeding, where he sees himself score, where he sees himself assist, where he hopefully gets some individual and team success and, you know, kind of move from there, right? Have something positive to build on and improve on going into next year. So, yeah, I, I think... This is a reason for optimism. This, this doesn't mean I think Nienander is going to be a 100-point player next year. I think he still has the same flaws that we thought he had two weeks ago. But, you know, if you were one of those people who thought that, you know, some some monstar from, like, Looney Tunes took his talent when he was in Sweden, <laughs> it's clear that that's not the case. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this too much just because there's been too much... Nylander bickering. Nylander has become almost like a cultural marker in the Leafs fan base. I know that that sounds bananas. That, that like, sounds like the thesis to a just... Ringer article. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, well, I've become what I despise. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think that, like, there are people who are so frustrated with him because of, you know, lack of production or what else. And there are some people who are so frustrated with those people, and then those people run into those people online. And it's just turned into this kind of snake eating its own tail situation where it's like it's almost not about him anymore it's about like whether you believe that Corsi is worthwhile and it's about what you think about Kyle Dubas and it's about all this sort of stuff and you know there you get into kind of these layers that make the whole thing kind of stupid so you know the bottom line is he's a good player and I think you're absolutely right that you know just being in a position to have some success again that'll be good for him so yeah, that's reassuring. And if, you know, beat up on Norway all you want, bud. <laughs> get, get some reps in. And, and but, to, to be so, fair to Neander, yeah. he he's done well, I think, against the two kind of high-quality rosters that he's faced. I think he, he got an assist against the Czech Republic, and then he had three points against Switzerland. And I'm pretty sure his year was on the ice for all three of Neander's points. So, like, he, he wasn't doing this against some guy who plays in the NLA. He was doing this against, yeah. you know, a good player. Yeah, for the record, like, Switzerland is by no means, like, a top, top hockey power now. But I think that maybe if you came up in my generation, you basically assumed, okay, there are seven real hockey countries. 
Canada, U.S., Sweden, Finland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Russia, and everyone else is a complete joke. And I think that Switzerland is now definitively, like, at least nipping at the edges of that group. They might be better than Slovakia, right? Because Slovakia is, like, golden generation is faded, right? I mean, Zdeno Char is still around, but he's not the player he used to be. Marian Hossa has a horrifying skin infection. Uh, That does not sound fun to endure at all. Yeah, that sounds really bad. You know, so Marian Gabrick yeah, is Slovakia you know, is yeah, declining. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you know, it's it's not like he's he's exclusively beating up on Patsy's here or anything. So yeah, I, I think that um it's a good and reassuring sign to have him putting up those points, even if it's like, look, the guy's a top line player. So <laughs> that's a good thing yes. to have. Um so a little optimistic thing kinda of going forward. I talked a bit about Rasmus Sandine earlier. And again, you know, I catch them always when I catch them, which is not all that often. But I talk to people who do more often than that. You know, I'm fortunate enough to hang out on this site with people like uh, Species 1967 and Hardev and uh, Kevin Papetti. And Rasmus Sandin is like getting me excited for pros- for a prospect in a way that I don't generally allow myself to be, <laughs> frankly. You might even rank like, him I've in been the top burned- 15. Of our top 25. Well, I don't know 25. about that. You know? <laughs> there are a lot of, like, 24-year-old grinders I'm going to have to put above them. But, uh, you know, I I don't want to get too carried away here, but, like, I'm sort of thinking, like, this guy could be a high-end player, which is something that I really have been reluctant to think about prospects other than the big three for a very long time just because it's so easy to talk yourself into so many players. But he's been so successful as an 18-year-old in the AHL. And he's such a smart player. You know, as much as, you know, there are so many things going on in terms of what makes you good defensively, what makes you a good defenseman. Some of it's just knowing to make the right play under pressure. And, you know, the criticism of Jake Gardner was always that he's trying to make the A++ play, even if when he misses it, it's going to be like an A++ chance against. Um, Rasmus Sandin seems like he thinks the game really well at a pretty young age. And so if you factor in a certain amount of age improvement, I don't think that you have to get too rosy to project him to be a top four difference maker and maybe more. And I think that that's really exciting. Uh, as a least fan, you know, there's not a whole lot going on in the prospect pool, but I am more excited about him than I have been about too many guys who were long-term AHLers since William Nylander. You know? Yeah. So. I mean, I, I talked to, to Kevin at our website about Sandin a lot. And one thing I, I like about Kevin's prospect evaluations is that he's very honest with them. He doesn't, he doesn't mind being unpopular. He doesn't mind saying this person is overrated. This person that, you know, everyone else likes, I'm not a huge fan of them. Mm-hmm. And he's been very, very positive about Sandin, and that gives me, honestly, a lot of confidence because I know when Kevin says, oh, I like this guy, it means he actually likes him. Um, if you've followed Kevin at any point in time, you know, he also really loves Eric Brandstrom, formerly of Vegas, got picked, I think, one pick before Timothy Liljegren, and now was traded mm-hmm. to Ottawa in the Mark Stone deal. And Brandstrom is like a consensus, like really high-end prospect now. And Kevin has said that, you know, I, I think I think that Louis Green is not far behind Brandstrom in any way. And that that's 
really exciting. And you know, you have a lot of these smart, knowledgeable people who cover Sorry, the uh, AHL. you mean Sandin, right? Sorry. In terms of, you said Lilligren is not far yes, behind? He said he, he, is yes, he said behind, he, but, he meant Sandin. Yeah. Sorry, thank you for correcting me. That, that yeah. was an important thing to correct. Um, yeah, so basically, people who know about the AHL and are not cheerleaders for all Marty's prospects are really excited about Sandin, and that makes me really excited about Sandin. The, the times that I have seen him, yeah, it, it, he seems like he is thinking it's a cliche he, he's thinking the game faster than his opponents right he processes the game really quickly he seems to make the right play he seems to have really good like spatial awareness right and really good understanding of where players are and where they're going to be and what his counters to the opposition are and i, I feel like he's not tremendously flashy he's not i i think one thing that you know he does not have is elite athleticism by NHL standards, right? Mm -hmm. You compare him to a guy like Morgan Riley, who, like, I'm half convinced that Morgan Riley could have gone pro in pretty much any sport he wanted to. He's a ridiculous athlete, right? Sandin doesn't have... Yeah, just phenomenal physical condition. Yeah, Sandin doesn't have that level of explosiveness or that agility or, you know, just the raw athletic gifts that that Riley does. But he's maximizing his tool set from everything that I can see and everything that I've heard. And, yeah, that's absolutely a source of excitement because... The Leafs are going to be in this position, as Brendan Shanahan said earlier this week. You know, as long as we're contenders, we're going to be cap-strapped, and that is undeniably true. Players like Sandin coming in and hopefully making a difference, you know, making a positive contribution on their ELCs, um, gives us, you know, an influx of talent, more people to cycle through, and also potentially another cornerstone if everything breaks right. Yeah, and, you know... That's great. That's extremely helpful for us. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not projecting him to be a full-time NHLer next year. Yeah, I mean, me neither. Um, I, you know, not that there's anything wrong with him. He's going to be 19 for most of next season. But just the fact that it already seems kind of plausible to project him as, like, a real NHLer at 20. Like, I'm not saying that that's by any means guaranteed. But that seems pretty reasonable. Um, when the reasonable projection is that optimistic on a guy, which is not that often. Um, I think that that's something pretty special. So, you know, it, it is very cool to have players that we can still get excited about. And frankly, the fact that we got him, you know, 29th overall is just kind of neat because you don't always get a whole of a, hell of a lot out of that kind of draft position. So, yeah, I think that, that uh, that's something to feel good about, certainly if you're keeping an eye on the pipeline. Yep. Okay, should I uh, should I go give my last optimistic point? Absolutely. We're all super annoyed about the contract that Mitch Marner is going to get, and with under you know understandably, but he is an absolutely brilliant player, and we are fortunate that we get to watch him and John Tavares for the next seven years. Yes. Um, that really yeah, that, uh, it's such a simple point and it's such an important point and it's such an easy point to admit. You know what I mean? Like. It's so easy to get preoccupied with, oh, he's going to be overpaid by a million, by a million five, by and something to be like clear, that. we got to keep this down. you and I have, we've had conversations where we've like basically just moaned about that fact. And yes, it yeah. sucks. And we probably are going to have at least one more yes, on this a- absolutely. before the time Absolutely, done. right? Um, and it, it does suck. But, it means uh, we're not capturing value that other teams are. It, yes, that makes it harder for us to succeed. Um, at the end of the day... You know, you, you, you do have to take a step, step back and say, we have 
you know, I'd rather this problem than not have Mitch Marner at all, right? Yeah, it's not an absolutely. ideal situation, but we can make it work. And the most important thing is we have guys like, as you said, you know, in your first point, we have guys like Matthews, we have guys like Tavares, and we have someone who is as good as Marner is. And, you know, I, I really do think Marner is a phenomenal player. And I, I, I want to really emphasize that because I feel like a lot of the time when I'm talking about Marner on this podcast, it's to mention his flaws um, mm-hmm. because he's not a perfect player. And I think more than any current Leaf, he, he he's almost certainly the most univer- universally beloved Leaf right now in the media mm-hmm. and in the fan base, uh, in the general fan base. So I think for a lot of Leaf fans, he's, they overrate him. But that doesn't change the fact that he, he is a really, really good player. And, I mean, secondarily, he's also a very fun player to watch, right? Like, I mean, look, yeah. Justin Williams is a great player. No one's telling their kids about seeing Justin Williams, right? But Mar- <laughs> Marner does stuff that we all wished we could do when we were kids playing on our driveway, right? And they're... Every now and then he's going to make a play where you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, that was Right, incredible. and I, look, this is away from the idea of like, oh, we have, you know, we're a very focused podcast about how do we win and how do we get, you know, we want stats and yeah. numbers, but like Marner <laughs> really captures what I love about hockey, right? He's just a really fun mm-hmm. player to watch and I'm, you know, we're, we're lucky that we get to watch a guy like him well, for the team that we support. Yeah, it is a great thing to just have players that you're excited about. You know, I remember... Uh, there was a time when it was like, well, I hope Phil Kessel does something tonight, because otherwise it's going to be pretty Yeah, and, and also, but, uh, Marner, he, he really seems like a, a very enjoyable individual to be around, right? Like, he, you yeah. know, by... He's having fun yeah, out there. You know, you know from know, everything we can see of him in the media and his interactions with teammates, um, you know, he seems like a just a kind of a beacon of joy, right? And it, mm-hmm. his personality perfectly matches his play style. So yeah. he's a guy you want to root for, and I, you know, it's. I'm, ha- I'm very happy he's on our team, and I reserve the right to complain for three days after he signs his contract about the contract, <laughs> and then after that I'll go back to, you know, talking like this about Mitch Marner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just something that I wanted to finish on as a kind of optimistic point because i think that we do talk about the salary cap here and you know people complain about this saying, oh i don't really want to hear about this anymore i'm sorry it's a fact of life it just is something that we have to live with if we're going to talk intelligently about this team and what it's doing but if you want some silver lining that even if the leafs do overpay mitch marner um once that's done they have Matthews, Tavares, Nylander, Marner locked up for term. And that's it. Um, now, Marner might get bridged. That's a possibility. But they'll have a lot more cost certainty. And the cap is probably going to keep going up. Whereas the Patrick Marlowe deal is going to come off the books. Um, when we talk about cap hell and stuff like that, there is nonetheless kind of a general trend where more space tends to open up over time. So, especially with players like these who are, you know, Tavares might be the exception, but even then it's not like it stretches too far and he's a brilliant player. But most of our players on these term contracts are likely to either even get better or to keep being very, very good. And we'll probably have some more room to build around them eventually down the line. So, 
you know, as much as I lament an overpay of a million here, a million there or something and like that. And it does that, matter. And it does. It, you know, it, it costs you a, a slot here and there. But I think time is on our side with some of these contracts in a way that it really isn't when you sign, you know, Brent Seabrook until he's 38. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's a potential for it to get better by itself while we still maintain having these good players. And so as much as the cap thing is going to be a squeeze, it's going to be a squeeze next year, especially. Um, it's not like we're going to be paralyzed for the next decade, which is, you know, there was a point at which it would have been true to say that about Detroit, for example. Um, so, so, you know, when I complain about cap problems, there's a squeeze. Shanahan's right. We're going to have to deal with this as a contender. But we're probably going to come out of this squeezed. But, you know not boa constrictor squeezed, not fatally squeezed, we'll be able to keep adjusting going forward. And maybe that's a nice way to loop around to what I was saying before, which is we're going to have more kicks at the can here. You know, the Leafs are not going to fall off a cliff and that was it. And we have to trade Austin Matthews now. There are going to be chances. There are going to be ups and downs and frustrating. And I'm not saying we're going to guarantee a cup, but this team still has a lot going for it and a lot of opportunities to win. And I think you're justified in being optimistic about them in that macro. Yeah. As as we've said before, I think all you can really do as a management group and, you know, from a fan's perspective is root for your group for the team to be as good as possible for as long as possible and just keep giving yourself chances. And that's no guarantee of anything. But the Leafs are as well set up as any team in the league to do that. Right. Um, People talk about the Leafs crappy cap situation it's like oh man you have all these bad all these amazing players you have to pay and you're going to lose other good players because of it um another team that is actually in the same boat i think is in a worse situation is is are the winnipeg jets Mm -hmm. right because they have a ton of free agents like their entire defense core essentially are are free agents uh they have a couple big name guys in Patrick Laine and Kyle Connor, who are coming up. Laine will probably get bridged, I imagine. Uh, Connor might try and go for a long-term deal. They signed... I mean, they have Mark Schleifen, one of the best non-ELC deals in the world. They have Blake Wheeler on a deal that is good value now and will presumably get slightly worse value every year because it it's a long one and he's already in his 30s. They're in a weird spot, right? They're, and there's mm. maybe one-tenth the ink spilled on their on you know their lost opportunity and you know their gm's awful and their coach is awful and everything's awful as there is about the least and that, that's a function of market size i'm not complaining about that that's just the reality of toronto being you know the glory franchise you know for better or for worse but you know you take a step back and you realize the leafs have a lot of good things going for them and they're in a good spot yeah. all things considered as crappy as this playoff season was losing to boston again um you know, you, you try and be zen about it and realize things could be a lot worse. And in fact, you know, in the broad scheme of things, things are pretty good. Yeah. And uh, we'll try and keep that in mind when we just really complain a lot over the rest of the Yes, yes. We're, we're, this is completely a do as I say, not as I do type of thing. Because we're going to bitch about everything. <laughs> it, you know, we wouldn't be us if we didn't. Exactly. Play. You know, it would be out of character. So, yeah, I think that that's a nice thing to take away this time. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we go? 
Uh, no, I think that that's about it. I'll write something eventually, because, as always, I haven't done it in a while, and I probably should. Yes. So. Um, one thing, actually, we should make clear, because I mentioned this briefly at the end of last podcast, but probably didn't mention it enough. Over the off-season, we're probably going to do podcasts once every two weeks. There's less to talk about. Um, we'll probably have some flexibility where, you know, if, for example, free agency, if July 1st weekend doesn't uh, line up, or like the, the area after that, after the first kind of flurry in free agency. If that doesn't line up with our current date, we might like do another one then. But basically, we'll have podcasts every other week and as news requires. So, uh, mm. and then once the season starts, we'll be back to our weekly schedule. So you can get your full, you know, your full amount of back to excited content. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so you can follow myself and Fulman. At, on Twitter at RVNATFullman. You can also catch all of the work we do at pensionplanpuppets.com and all of the work that all of our talented writers do. Uh, the leaf season is over, but we still have uh, Marley's coverage, general hockey coverage, us complaining about stuff. Uh, and then in the offseason, we'll have you know draft stuff, free agency stuff, and of course, our top 25 under 25 series. And you know we'll, we'll make sure to discuss that on the podcast when we get to that point as well. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks.